Kevin, is this a good spot to put this? You need a little stand? I was originally supposed to be going to the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church AGM, and so I had asked, asked Kevin to do a little pulpit supply preaching for me, and he graciously said yes. And then with the stuff that was going on in our family, I kind of pulled out of that at the last minute, and uh, he graciously um, has given me kind of a Sunday off, but asked me to read. Um, so I'm going to read first, and then Sue. Okay, can you just hold this mic? And I'm reading Mark 9, verses 30 to 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days... He will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And I'm reading from Isaiah 53 verses 2 to 11. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our iniquities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, 
and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So, good morning, everyone. As Jeff said, my name is Kevin, and uh, in case you're wondering, I, I broke my foot a while back, and it wasn't healing well, and so the doctor said I needed to put this great cast on there and stay off of it. So, that's why I'm hobbling around with crutches today. Does anyone here remember where they were, uh, if you're old enough, on July 20th, 1969? Anyone? I, I see some nods. Yeah, why is that date important? There we go. The, that was the Apollo moon landing. That was the day that the first humans set foot on the moon. Now, I have a friend who's convinced that the whole thing was faked. And he will tell you in great detail how Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin didn't actually walk on the moon, that the whole thing was filmed in a studio, and it was released as Cold War propaganda. And I've had discussions back and forth with him, and I, I you know, a while back I came across an interesting video that claimed to show that they didn't even have the camera technology to fake it back in 1969. And I sent this video to him to see what he thought. But you know what? He didn't even look at it. He wasn't interested. You see, he has put his faith and his trust so completely in some person or organization or website that the issue was settled in his mind. He wasn't really interested in challenging this opinion that he'd developed. And it's easy to look at him and say, wow, that's a little bit wacky. But the fact is, I wasn't on the moon that day, and neither was, was he. Both of us have chosen some authority, some source that, that, that we trust, um, we've chosen someone that we see as a, a credible authority to inform our decision. And that's what we all do in general, don't we? All of us have developed a, a set of beliefs and ideas that come to us through a variety of authorities. Perhaps that authority was a parent or a teacher, um, maybe a pastor or a writer. You likely developed some beliefs on your own, too, where your own intuition was that authority. And this isn't necessarily bad, because we need to do this to learn and to function and, and to live. And many of the things we learn are good and wholesome and right, but there is a potential danger here. And that is this. Anytime we believe something that's not directly from the Word of God, we need to be careful. We need to hold on to these things gently, because they're not authoritative. And they could be wrong. Now, we don't always get that right. It's part of the human condition that we sometimes put too much faith in those things that are from the wrong authorities and things that are taught of man. Ask me about politics sometime. I can get really passionate about things that aren't specifically articulated in the Bible. That's something I'm still working on. But this is a common struggle, and things haven't really changed much in 2,000 years 
the people of Jesus' time, including his disciples, had some pretty mixed up ideas about authority. Before I go on, I should pause and just let you know that what I'm going to say today assumes that the Bible and the words of Jesus are the inspired, inspired and inerrant word of God. I'm asserting this without providing you a lot of background. Now, if that's an assertion you struggle with and you don't know how a person arrives at that, that's a good question. And there are good answers but I'm not going into that topic today. So if you'd like to learn more about that, I'm happy to chat with you afterwards. I know Jeff would be. Um, come and talk to us if, if you'd like some background on, on how I came to that assertion. Okay, so as we came to our passage that Jeff read from Mark, <clears throat> Jesus is beginning his final journey back to Jerusalem. He knows his time is near. And where he has been focusing a lot of his teaching on the, the people, on the crowds, he's now narrowing that down, and he's focusing more on the disciples. And you might recall there have been two consistent themes in Jesus' teaching. He's been teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's been teaching about who he is, the, the Messiah. Now, at first, he was, he was really subtle about his identity as Messiah. He didn't want to get people too, too worked up but he knows his time is coming, and he knows it's, it's close, and so he's starting to be really clear, and he's hammering this home over and over again. Unfortunately, the disciples are really having trouble understanding what he's saying, because what he's saying is conflicting with their ideas of who the Messiah is. You, you see, the disciples, they believe the Messiah, he will come in triumph, he will be exalted and powerful, and he will establish an earthly kingdom, now and here. And they're, they're almost right. You see, they're basing their beliefs on Scripture. It's a good authority. They're thinking about verses like, like this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. They're thinking that, that's what the Messiah looks like. And, and even more so, in Daniel, it says... In my vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, the disciples immediately make this connection with Daniel. They're thinking triumphant Messiah, glory, power, everlasting dominion. But they're not so sure when he says the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him. You see, to them, a Messiah doesn't get beaten. He doesn't get tortured. He doesn't get killed. There had been a few men who had come and gone uh, who claimed to be a Messiah, and so far the rule was pretty consistent. If you're following a Messiah and that guy gets himself killed, it's time to find a new Messiah. And, and frankly, the Jews of today would say exactly the same thing. Why don't you believe in Jesus? Well, look around you. Is he sitting on the throne glorious and exalted? Is Israel 
lifted up under his rule? Is there peace on earth? No, he's not the Messiah. He got killed by the Romans. End of story. Now, I have to say this always confused me a little bit because, you know, modern Jews know their Bible really well. The observant ones do. And in Jesus' time, his disciples and the Jews of that time, they knew their Bible really well too. The Old Testament scriptures, how could they have completely missed all those prophecies that do talk about how the Messiah will suffer and die. Sue read a passage from Isaiah 53. That's, that is one of those, of, of, it's one of four passages, really poems that you would find in Isaiah that are about a mysterious person called the servant of the Lord or the servant of Yahweh. And these passages are called the servant songs. And each of these songs describes what that servant is like, what he will do, what his role is in God's plan. The passage that Sue read is the fourth servant song. It's sometimes called the suffering servant. And it's remarkable how closely it aligns with Jesus' suffering and death and also about the purpose of his suffering and death. Let's look again at some of those verses. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's powerful. And it's not the only prophecy in the Old Testament that describes a humble, suffering Messiah. So why didn't the disciples get it? They knew those verses. Why didn't they connect them with what Jesus was telling them? It's hard to be 100% certain of what the disciples were thinking, but it's very possible that like the modern Jews of today, they had been led astray by Jewish traditions. And those traditions go way back, right back to Moses. So let's rewind about 1,500 years before Christ. In the book of Exodus, we read how the Israelites were led out of Egypt into the desert, to the wilderness, and during that time, their leader, Moses, was called up onto Mount Sinai where God met him and gave him the Ten Commandments and the the Book of the Law. And these were written down in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. However, the Jews have a second tradition that God also gave Moses a different set of laws. They call that the oral law. And that was not meant to be written down. According to tradition, the oral law acts as a, as a practical explanation of the, the written law. And the rationale is this. God gave us his written laws but didn't really tell us how to keep them. So for example, when it says, don't do work on the Sabbath, Well, what exactly does God mean by work? And so the oral law is intended to act as an explanation of 
the details. And so the oral law was passed down by the rabbis through word of mouth for generation after generation. But here's the thing. The rabbis saw themselves as having the authority to add to the law. They could add their own commentary. So if Rabbi Smellfungus decided that he had some new insights on whether it was permissible to treat a toothache on the Sabbath, he could add in his own theories, teach them to his followers, and they would then get passed down through the generations. I'm not actually being facetious about the toothache. There are volumes of discussion on how you can treat toothaches on the Sabbath. They get really, really, really detailed. So as the oral law was passed down over hundreds of years, and all these rabbis were able to inject their two bits, there literally grew thousands and thousands of rules. And there was extensive commentary on the whole Old Testament scriptures. Now here's the thing. For most Jews of that time, these oral laws were considered divinely inspired and authoritative. So that might be what was keeping the disciples from connecting Jesus' words with the prophecies in Isaiah and elsewhere. You see, there was a lot of discussion in the oral law about Messiah. The rabbis had wrestled with the apparent conflict. How could the Messiah be tortured and killed when he was to be glorious and powerful? Uh, if you're, you're listening online, you won't see I've got a slide up that's showing some verse snippets from the Old Testament that are showing descriptions of a glorious Messiah and descriptions of a, of a humble Messiah. To resolve this conflict, some rabbis came up with what is really a, a pretty creative solution. They said there would be two Messiahs. There was a main Messiah. There would be the triumphant one, the one Daniel calls the Son of Man. This guy they called the Messiah, Son of David. Okay, so far so good. But then there was going to be another Messiah who was humble, who came riding on a donkey and was beaten and humiliated and ultimately sacrificed for the sins of the people. Tradition held that the second Messiah would descend from the, the tribe of Ephraim. And Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph, you know, Joseph with the, the colorful coat who became a leader of Egypt. So Ephraim was the son of Joseph, and so they named this Messiah, if you can believe it, Messiah ben Yosef, or Messiah son of Joseph. Interesting. And there's a good chance that this is what the disciples had been taught. So when Jesus said to them, the son of man must suffer and die, they could well have been thinking, no, Jesus, you're, you're getting this mixed up. Um, the son of man is the triumphant one. The other guy, that other Messiah, he's the one who's supposed to suffer and die. The root of the problem here is that the disciples were confused about authority. They were confused who had the greatest authority to be teaching them. They had it in their heads that the Jewish oral traditions had a greater authority than the words of Jesus, which were his opinion. They, oh, he was wise in everything, but not at the same level as the Jewish oral law. In fact, they had that exactly backwards. It was Jesus' words, which were the final, ultimate, eternal authority, and the oral traditions were just man's opinion. 
And so while Jesus was telling them what was going to happen to him, he was also telling them, I'm not subject to your traditions. The Son of Man, the Messiah, Son of David, that's me. And that other guy, the beaten and rejected and murdered Messiah that the religious experts call Messiah, Son of Joseph, that's me too. In fact, they're really the same person. And a lot of the stuff those religious experts have been telling you is wrong. Now, unfortunately, the disciples, they didn't catch on. The scripture said they didn't understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask. And when I read that verse, I, I, I envision this line of 12 guys with completely blank expressions on their faces. They didn't have a clue where to go with this information. You see, they were, let, they were willing to let Jesus fit into their ideas of what a Messiah was, but they weren't ready to accept that his words were greater than their tradition. And so at a certain level, they didn't believe him. And we know this is the case, because in the next passage, we read, as Jeff read, that they were arguing about who was going to be greatest. They completely missed what he was telling them. And you have to think this would have been really hard for Jesus. Put yourself in Jesus' position for a moment. And we can do that, because as Jeff just told us, Jesus was fully God and fully human. We can relate to him. Put yourself in his position. If you were in his shoes, and you know you knew the details of the horrible torture and death that was facing you, it would probably be very emotional, emotional even to talk about it. Have you ever had a situation where emotion wells up within you when you're telling someone something really sad or painful? Why would Jesus be any different? And yet not only did the disciples not understand him, but at some level they didn't even believe him. That would have been really hard, a small rejection in advance of much, much greater rejections. But... Jesus is incredibly patient. He, he doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't give up on them. He sits down and he continues teaching. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and the servant of all. Do you think it's a coincidence that he used the word servant? Or is he intentionally trying to connect them again back to that prophecy of the servant of the Lord? I am the suffering servant. I have come as a servant to all. And those who would be great must be like me. We, we know how this story ends. The disciples heard what he said, but they didn't yet understand who he was or what authority his words carried. They don't realize his words are eternal, but they will soon. And the application for us is no different. The word of God is eternal, perfect, and unchangeable. It is the final authority. Everything else is just man's opinion. Many have described this principle using the words sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola scriptura means that outside of scripture, everything you hear, no matter who it's from, is just opinion. There is no person or organization that has special authority to interpret the scripture, not the Jewish uh, rabbis, not the Pope. They only have opinions, not authority. Now, 
Again, that doesn't mean opinions are always wrong or misguided or wicked. Certainly some are, but there is much to be learned from the teachings of man. Even in the Jewish oral law, there were teachings that most agree were sound and that contribute to a godly, stable society. But at best, they're still flawed. They're human, and they will pass away. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. They're eternal. So in practice, if you accept the principle of sola scriptura, if you give scripture final authority in your life, you will be doing two things. You will evaluate everything you hear, you read, and you think against God's word. I'm going to say that again. You will evaluate everything you hear, you read, and you think against God's word. Right now, you will be weighing every word I speak and comparing it to what is written in Scripture. It means that when you hear a, a political theory or a counselor's advice or your spouse's rebuke or even the insult of someone who hates you, each of these will be evaluated against God's word. You might see some truth in what you've been told, even in the hard things, or you may decide it doesn't align, and therefore you discard it, pay no further attention. The second thing you will do, if you accept the principle of sola scriptura, is you will hold gently to the ideas of man, no matter how brilliant or insightful. Hold gently to the ideas of man, no matter how brilliant or insightful. What do I mean by that? At its, finest, at its finest, the wisdom of man is still at a different level from the word of Scripture. Even when it seems to align with Scripture, we hold on to this wisdom gently, tentatively even, because it comes from a flawed source, and it might be wrong. The practical reality is that human ideas come and go. Pick, pick a subject, science, economics, ethics, medicine, philosophy. If we go back even 150 years, we would find that the vast majority of the ideas in those subjects, which were once thought to be brilliant and true and good, have long been discarded. We laugh at them now. And if history is any indicator, 100 years from now, most of the things our current society believes and views as good and wise and scientifically correct, will be laughed at too. Only the word of God is eternal. All else is shifting sand. And I will leave you with this from 1 Peter. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your perfect word. I thank you that we have a foundation on which we can rest, a foundation on which we can compare all else. And uh, I pray that you would teach us to look to that foundation with the authority that it is, it is due.